My name is Stuart Merrill, and I woke up this day. Episode 3, Top Secret. Stuart Merrill, please report to the principal's office. Stuart Merrill, to the principal's office. Ah, oh, shit, I thought. What have I done now? It was just a couple of weeks before graduation from Brighton High School in an upscale suburb of Salt Lake City, Utah. A few months earlier, I had signed up to take a series of government aptitude tests to get out of science class. I hated science and would do anything to avoid my hatefully homophobic science teacher, Mr. Johnson, who also happened to be my second cousin. He loved hazing the class queer while publicly denouncing the fact that we were related. Coming from a long line of prolific Mormon polygamists, I quite literally have thousands of cousins. Most of them are pretty cool, but as in every family, there are a few Johnsons. I wasn't out in high school. Hell, I didn't even know what it meant to be gay, much less that I might be gay, though admittedly I did have a strange obsession with men's underwear advertisements. But honestly, I'm not sure the concept of living an openly gay life in Utah even existed in 1979. If it did, it had never crossed my mind as a possibility. All I knew was people in Utah seemed to react to me in one of two very polarized and highly confusing ways. Either they were aggressively disgusted by me and had no trouble showing it, or they treated me like a sort of token, a cute curiosity as if I were some basset hound puppy constantly tripping over my own ears. I genuinely had no idea what it was I did to elicit such extreme reactions. In retrospect, I guess I was just the only one who didn't understand I was gay. At that point, I had only had one homosexual experience. Actually, I had only had one sexual experience of any kind. Well, at least an experience that involved someone else. In my sophomore year, Mum and I had moved to Vancouver, Canada for a year to get away from my abusive brother. While working at a frozen yogurt shop in Gastown, my boss invited me home to give me a company t-shirt. When we got there, he offered to give me a massage. I was 16 at the time, and I didn't have sex with another man until I was almost 22. Anyway, I had seen the results of my aptitude tests, and very surprisingly, had tested at the top of my class. The reason this was such a surprise was, well, the only reason I was even graduating high school with my D- average was because my very well-connected mother had blackmailed the principal. Mum was a savvy politician who had married into a prominent political family and knew where all the bodies were buried in Utah. She obviously had something on my principal. Making sure I graduated high school was not the only time Mum had to remind him that she had gotten him his job and could very easily have him fired and prevent him from finding any other job anywhere in the state unless he did as she demanded. The principal's secretary was a friend of my mom's. She knew I was struggling socially and would occasionally just call me down to the office to chat, flip through magazines, or just help her with some project when she sensed that I needed a break. I was hoping that's what this was about and not yet another trumped-up hazing of some sort. When I arrived at the principal's office this time, though, she said, Just go on in. The principal's waiting for you. Ah, shit, I thought. 
I suddenly found myself in a room full of very intimidating and very official-looking shiny straight men in bad polyester suits, my least favorite and most feared demographic. Again, thanks to my mother, I had started speaking Russian and German as a small child. Though my vocabulary in both languages was rudimentary at best, because of the age I had started, I had no accent in either language. This, combined with the results of my aptitude tests, had somehow caught the attention of various intelligence agencies. At that point, I didn't even know what the NSA was. I had heard of the CIA and FBI, of course, but much to my surprise, representatives from every intelligence agency and every branch of the United States military were there to recruit me. Though I didn't know the word at the time, I was gobsmacked. At that stage, I no longer considered myself a Mormon. But the U.S. government has always considered Mormons to be a good security risk. As a result, various U.S. intelligence agencies did, and still do, a great deal of recruiting in Utah. I have some very strong opinions on this, but let's save that for a later podcast. My Russian mum had been in correspondence with an editor at National Geographic who specialized in Russia and had produced a few excellent books and articles on the subject. They ended up dating for a while, and through him she met one of President Carter's Soviet advisors. I suspect one of the two of them may have played a role in bringing me to the attention of the recruiters. Mum asked President Carter's Soviet advisor to take me to lunch when he was next in Utah to discuss my options. He pointed out that most people who joined the NSA, CIA, or FBI stayed for life, and he soundly suggested perhaps I wasn't that type. However, if I joined the military, I could get a good education, improve my academic record, and that would help me get into and pay for a good university when I got out. After a few tedious months selling shoes, I decided I had to do something to get out of Utah so I joined Army Intelligence. It was a very unlikely choice for a skinny, effeminate young man, but it turned out to be a good decision. A few days later, I set out for Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri for my basic training. During basic training, I was offered a position at West Point, but I was not willing to make the 10-plus year commitment, so I turned it down. In retrospect, I wish I had said yes. After four years with my West Point diploma in hand, I could have just come out as gay and been discharged, the perfect way to get a very prestigious degree with no student loans. I know this seems a bit manipulative and even slightly immoral to take advantage of the government like that, but considering the way the government and the military treated gays at that time, it would have been a smart and frankly very justified thing to do. After graduation from the year-long Russian language course at the Defense Language Institute in Monterey, California, and a few months' intelligence training in Texas and Massachusetts, I received my orders to go to Fort Riley, Kansas. I was a bit reluctant at first to use my mother's connections to correct this minor geographic error the Army had made, but after a few months washing jeeps in Kansas, I decided to give her a call. It was also during my time in Kansas that I came to terms with being gay, and a new life in Germany would be a great fresh start for my new gay life. Mum called Senator Orrin Hatch, an old family friend, and a few days later, I received a call from the senator's office asking me where I wanted to go. 
My options were Turkey, Japan, South Korea, or Germany. I was hoping for Berlin, but there was nothing available, and the very next day I received orders sending me to Augsburg, Germany, just outside of Munich. Ironically, my company commander in Kansas happened to be a Mormon from Utah. He and the battalion commander were livid when they received my order sending me to Germany. After enduring a heated lecture from a red-faced lieutenant colonel, I calmly replied, with all due respect, sir, senators outrank colonels and captains, and I returned to the barracks and began to pack my things. My time in the service was unremarkable. I simply served out my time and took advantage of the very favorable exchange rate and toured Europe on weekends with my army buddies. This was before Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and people who came out in the military were usually discharged, but not always. It was about a 12-month process to discharge someone, so I waited until I had 11 months of service left, and then I came out. Strangely, before Don't Ask, Don't Tell, there was a certain amount of wink-and-nod tolerance for gays in military intelligence and in the medical field, especially in the European theater. It was widely assumed around 20 to 30% of soldiers in intelligence and medical were gay. Mind you, coming out with a top-secret security clearance was not entirely without risk. Legally speaking, it was still considered such a serious security violation that it was an imprisonable offense. In addition to serving as team leader at the listening post where I worked, I was also barrack sergeant and had frequent meetings with our battalion commander. Our battalion commander ran a pretty progressive unit. It was 1983, and we already had co-ed bathrooms a decade before such a thing would have even been thinkable in the States. Assuming his views on homosexuality would be equally liberal, I came out to him, and he initially seemed rather unimpressed. Once we had concluded our business that day, he took great pleasure in telling me the backstory of what had just occurred between him and our new, very gung-ho and clearly homophobic Sergeant Major, who, before being transferred to an intelligence unit, had spent his entire career in the infantry. Shortly after the Sergeant Major's arrival, a young private had a bit of a nervous breakdown while coming out as gay and gave the new sergeant major a list of all the suspected homosexuals in my unit. He, in turn, brought the list to our battalion commander. I knew about the private and his breakdown. He was a friend of mine, and we were all pretty concerned about him. But I had no idea about the list. Our battalion commander told the sergeant major the list was incomplete. He asked him to return with all the names in one column and what jobs we performed in the other. When he returned, he asked the sergeant major to cover up our names and just read out the functions we performed. The sergeant major proceeded to read off many, if not most, of the leadership roles in our unit. When he was finished, the colonel said, Okay, now who the fuck is going to run my battalion? Get the hell out of here and leave these guys alone. That was the end of that particular witch hunt. Generally, coming out as a gay man in Germany in the 80s was pretty much a non-event. It was akin to coming out with blue eyes in Denmark. Nobody gave a shit. After separation from the military, my mother and I planned to tour Scandinavia and Eastern Europe together. Before leaving, I met with someone in military intelligence to inform them we would be traveling through the Soviet Union and, of course, to ask their permission to do so. I still held a top-secret security clearance, and I was obliged to let them know. 
They told me it was fine, but made it clear that if I was approached, and they suggested it was likely I could be, I must report it when I returned to the West. I left with the distinct impression they were encouraging me to go along with it if anyone did approach me. Mum and I met in Amsterdam, one of my favorite cities. While I was showing her around, we overheard a bunch of people speaking Russian in Koikenhof Gardens. It turned out it was a group from the Netherlands Russia Center. They invited us to join them for dinner, drinks, and dancing at their center later that evening. The event was sponsored by a Moscow-based magazine specifically published for Russians who live abroad. In typical Russian fashion, we stuffed ourselves with fabulous Russian food, got very drunk, and had a great time singing and dancing well into the wee hours of the morning. A handsome Dutch gentleman who was attending the event with his breathtaking Russian wife took me aside at one point and told me he was pretty sure the magazine was a KGB front organization and warned me to be careful. We had been chatting, and he knew I had been a Russian interpreter for U.S. Army intelligence. Then he joked, but they serve the best Russian food in Holland, and it's free, so my wife and I never miss any of their events. The host of the evening suggested when Mum and I were in Moscow later that month, we should visit him in his office. Two weeks later, while Mum stayed in our hotel for a nap, I took him up on his offer. He was very interested in two things, my future plans and my opinion of Ronald Reagan. Since I genuinely detest Ronald Reagan, it was very easy to give him the convincingly passionate response he was hoping for. Regarding my plans, I told them I wanted to stay a year or two in Munich, find a job as a waiter or something, while attending classes to improve my German language skills. Then I would return to America to go to university. I was quite taken aback when he offered to pay my tuition to study German at the very expensive and prestigious Goethe Institute in Munich, and to give me a stipend to help me with my expenses. He also suggested that once I returned to America, they would pay for my university. Interestingly, he never once mentioned why they were offering to help me or what they were expecting from me in return. He just skipped straight to the part where we would meet a month later in Munich and then on a monthly basis in East Berlin. It occurred to me then if the Soviet government was paying this guy to follow me all around Europe, this was a pretty big deal. To be perfectly honest, though, I found the whole situation rather humorous and typically Russian. The elephant in the room was simply never discussed. We both knew what was happening, what transaction was being proposed, but the words were never actually spoken. Just like in a Tolstoy novel, Russians can go on for a thousand pages and never once say the words or use the actual noun the story is about. Nothing could be more Russian than that. Immediately upon my return to Munich, I reported what was happening to the Americans. It turned out my suspicions were correct. This cultural organization and their magazine were known recruiting arms of the KGB. They suggested I allow them to recruit me and report back to them on a monthly basis. They also admonished me for coming to their office, as they suspected it was under constant surveillance, and they forbade me from ever coming there again. I was assigned a handler, and he explained the procedure for our future meetings. We would meet in a different place every month, a couple days after my monthly trips to East Berlin. 
At the end of each meeting, he would tell me where and when we would meet the following month. At each meeting, I was instructed to exit the train or subway station and leisurely walk in a particular direction. I would then see my handler walking towards me, carrying a copy of that day's Herald Tribune. If the newspaper was facing up, I was to continue walking, and within a couple of blocks he would catch up to me either on foot or in his car. He also explained he had a couple of co-workers, whom he assured me I would never meet or even notice, who would make sure I wasn't being followed. If I was being trailed, my handler would still walk towards me, but the Herald Tribune in his hand would be facing upside down. In that case, I should not acknowledge him and just keep walking and pretend I was out enjoying the scenery. Then I should go back to the train station and return home without making contact. If that were ever to happen, the Americans would contact me later at a time and place of their choosing. At each meeting, I was required to give the Americans all the money the Russians had given me in East Berlin. The Americans would then give me an envelope of cash calculated to cover my monthly stipend from the KGB, my tuition, and my travel expenses. This system worked very much to my advantage. My American handler was meticulous about promptly getting me my money. Whereas my Russian handler was occasionally late reimbursing tuition or travel costs, and I suspect he was sometimes skimming a bit off the top of my stipend, as it was sometimes less than what we had agreed. My American handler loved traditional Bavarian food and would always find the best little faraway restaurants in these charming little Bavarian villages tucked away in the countryside or at the base of the Bavarian Alps. I always looked forward to our meetings, and not just for the fabulous food. Because of my abusive childhood, I had a very deep-set distrust of straight men in position of authority. But he helped me outgrow this prejudice. We even openly discussed it. He was a kind, respectful, intelligent, and inquisitive straight man with a great sense of humor, and I quickly grew to admire him. He had my back, and I knew I could trust him. I often think about him, and I genuinely wish we had been allowed to stay in touch. To this day, one of my favorite possessions is the Swiss Army knife he gave me for Christmas. Each month, I would meet my KGB handler on the West Berlin side of the Friedrichstrasse subway platform. We would enter this unobtrusive metal door that looked like a utility closet. Behind that was a second door, then a ridiculously tall control desk. The desk was usually manned by the same very sexy security guard in an East German army uniform, who incidentally totally set off my gaydar. After reviewing my handler's identification, he would give me a bit of a smirk and a knowing glance, which confirmed to me his gaydar was also in good working order, then he would wave us through. Above him to the left hung a photo of Eric Honecker, the East German head of the Communist Party, like some ironic communist icon keeping watch over us all. There was then a short walk through a confusing underground labyrinth navigated by my handler, and then we would surface on the East Berlin side of the Friedrichstrasse train station. The driver would meet us in his Trabant, an iconic East German car that is remarkably similar to what Americans know as a Mini Cooper, and what Europeans refer to as an Austin Mini, but we just called this East German cult classic a Traube. He would then drive us to a 14-story apartment building across the street from the old Ethiopian embassy in East Berlin. 
Those 14-story apartment buildings are the iconic hallmark of hideous communist architecture. There are thousands of them covering all 11 time zones of the former Soviet bloc from Berlin to the Bering Straits, each and every one absolutely identical. Later, I lived in one of these buildings in a Moscow suburb on Soldier Street, or it could have been Soldier Boulevard, or maybe it was Soldier Avenue. It doesn't really matter because there were six or eight similarly named streets all parallel to each other, each and every one absolutely identical. There were the exact same number of identical 14-story apartment buildings on both sides of every street. They all had the exact same shops in the exact same spots, filled with the exact same empty shelves. At the end of every third apartment building on the right was a fish store and a kindergarten. Behind the fish store, I would take the elevator up to the identical-looking door, behind which was the exact same furniture you found in almost every apartment in the Soviet Union. My all-time favorite Soviet-era film, The Ironic Fate, is a brilliant comedy about these ridiculous buildings. On more than one occasion when coming home drunk, I accidentally turned onto Soldier Boulevard instead of Soldier Street. Then I walked behind the ubiquitous fish store to take the elevator up to what I thought was my apartment, only to discover that my key didn't work. The first time this happened, it was about two in the morning, and I pounded on the door expecting to wake up my friend's mother, Galina, with whom I was living at the time. Instead, some terrified older gentleman opened the door, fearing it was the KGB there to arrest him. I asked him what floor I was on, and when he confirmed it was the correct floor, he asked me what street I was looking for. We both burst out laughing when I realized what I had done. On two occasions, he actually invited me in for some cognac, on the condition I never mentioned to a soul that we had met. He was a retired journalist and a history buff who had no family. Every wall of his apartment was lined with history books in multiple languages. He was clever, well-educated, and spoke quite good German with this charming Estonian accent. There's an old Soviet-era joke. A woman hears someone pounding on her door in the middle of the night. She goes to the door, but she's too terrified to open it. Then she hears a familiar voice on the other side. Nadia, it's okay, dear. It's just me, Ludmila. Don't worry, it's nothing serious, just the building burning down. Run for your life. In East Berlin, our Trouby driver's wife, Natasha, was our cook and could always be counted on for a mouth-watering Russian feast, preparing all my favorite dishes. She used to tease me because I love to eat pienmeni, Russian dumplings, with both sour cream and butter. Between my two handlers, I was eating very well in my new line of work. While continuing my studies at the Goethe Institute, my monthly visits in East Berlin were spent grooming me for when I returned to the United States to attend university and then position myself in corporate America. A few days after each Berlin trip, I would report to my American handler somewhere in Bavaria. One month, he showed up with a new assistant who, at least to me, was quite obviously a lesbian. She asked if she could have a meeting with just the two of us a couple of days later. More than any other conversation in my lifetime, I wish I had somehow recorded every word of that meeting. It was a highly choreographed, intricate verbal dance of dog whistles and innuendos, 
as we one ever so slightly incriminating step at a time, gingerly came out to each other, the whole time meticulously maintaining plausible deniability in case we were wrong and had gone too far. It took about 20 minutes of these intricate oral acrobatics until we finally came out to each other. She told me she wasn't out at work, but there had been some question as to whether I was gay, which frankly surprised me. I assumed everyone knew I was gay. I had been waiting for this conversation, though, and I had a well-rehearsed response prepared. My being an out gay man actually was very much to the advantage of the American government. The KGB was notorious for blackmailing gays to work for them. I was later to discover the KGB itself was riddled with homosexuals, and there's a very good reason for it. If they were ever outed in Russian society, their lives would be over. Using this as leverage, the KGB regularly blackmailed gays into doing whatever they needed done. There was absolutely no one in my life at the time who didn't know I was gay. I was out to everyone, my family, my friends, the people I worked with, everyone, so there was really no way I could be blackmailed. The idea that a homosexual could not be blackmailed, manipulated, and controlled was absolutely inconceivable to the Russians. The Russians thought I was easily controllable, but the Americans knew that was totally untrue. My being gay benefited the United States government by giving them an extra level of security while giving the Russians a false sense of security. At our next meeting, my handler and his new assistant told me the Department of Defense Intelligence Agency, the DIA, had agreed to my theory, was allowing me to keep my security clearance, and had given us the green light to continue. A few weeks later, buried on page 5 or 6 of the Herald Tribune, was an article stating that the DIA and NSA had officially changed their policy on gays. The new policy allowed homosexuals to keep their security clearances, as I had been allowed to keep mine. I'll never know for sure, but my handler led me to believe I may have been the first American allowed to do so. For my first official mission, the Russians wanted me to make contact with an American soldier they were recruiting in Munich. They didn't tell me much about him, only that he was a young father struggling to support his family. As is always the case during Republican administrations, American soldiers at the time were not very well paid. I was given a small package and instructed to give it to him after we made contact. We were to meet in front of the Hofbräu House in Munich. I was looking for a young man carrying a blue paper folder under one arm and wearing a red sweater over his shoulders with the arms tied in front, as was the horrible preppy fashion of the day. I arrived early and immediately noticed the curtains moving in a couple of hotel rooms across the street. The Americans had told me they were pretty sure they knew who I was going to meet, but they still planned to photograph us. But I hadn't anticipated the Russians would also be photographing our auspicious little encounter. Kitty corner from the Americans, one floor up and two rooms over, I saw another telephoto lens peeking out from behind a curtain. The whole scenario was so classic Keystone Cop, I couldn't help but laugh. I've since forgotten the passphrase and response I was instructed to use, but it didn't matter, since we never made contact. I took one look at this terrified young man, and I just couldn't do it. 
I knew this poor kid was eventually going to prison, but I could not bring myself to be the one who sent him there. Instead of wearing the sweater the way I was told he would, he was carrying the sweater under one arm and the blue paper folder under the other. I decided to play dumb and use this as an excuse not to make contact. As I neared completion of my degree at the Goethe Institute, the Russians wanted me to take a trip back to the United States and follow up on a couple of university applications I had submitted. I explained to them it didn't work that way in the United States. I just had to wait and hear if I got accepted or not, but they insisted I go. Who was I to argue about a free trip to Chicago? Besides, as the son of an accomplished nepotist, I figured it couldn't hurt. I was all for getting what I wanted the unconventional way. I flew to Chicago, and when I arrived, called the admissions office at the University of Chicago, but they flatly refused to see me and sent me a rejection letter a few weeks later. I figured it was harder to say no in person, so I went to the Northwestern campus, and someone actually agreed to speak with me. It worked. A few weeks later, I received an acceptance letter to start Northwestern University the following year, as I had just missed the current year's submission deadline. That was fine with me. I was in no hurry to end the sweet gig I had going on in Munich. The Russians wanted me to do a 30-day training course in Moscow before returning to the States. I was to fly to Greece and tell everyone I was taking a quiet vacation on some remote Greek island. From Athens, they would fly me to Moscow for a month, then back to Greece for a few days to get a really good tan so I could fool everybody back in Germany. That part was my idea. Everything was arranged, the Russians gave me the money necessary for my trip, I had the date and time of my flight from Athens to Moscow, the only thing left was one last meeting with my American handler before my big trip to the Soviet Union. At the pre-arranged meeting point, I saw my handler walking towards me holding the Herald Tribune as always, when I suddenly realized it was upside down. Fuck! I rented a bike at the train station, toured around the cute little Bavarian town, had lunch, and then took the train back to my apartment in Munich, and waited to hear from the Americans. A couple of days later, leaving my apartment, I saw my handler waiting in his car across the street. I got in, and he told me what happened. Apparently, someone in the West German Secret Service had taken notice of my frequent trips to East Berlin. They started following me and discovered I was also meeting with the Americans. Though the West Germans were on our side, their secret service was notoriously leaky, and the risk was considered just too high to continue. I had noticed I was being surveilled, but I assumed it was the Americans. I was told I had to leave Germany before my scheduled departure to Greece, which only left us a few days. I explained I was in no financial position to move to a new country and set myself up with a new apartment and a new life. My handler assured me I would be given a new handler immediately upon my arrival in Chicago, given money for a deposit and first month's rent, and continue receiving my monthly stipend for a couple of months until I was able to get on my feet. We picked the day of my departure, and a couple days later he gave me a one-way ticket to Chicago. Not knowing what else to do, I contacted Northwestern University and asked them if I could start winter quarter, and they agreed. When I arrived in Chicago, I was dropped like a nuclear-radiated hot potato. Fortunately, I was able to stay with an old army friend till I found work. 
Then, combined with my student loans, I was able to scrape together enough money to get a place. But I literally spent those first few weeks living on top ramen and cabbage. A couple months later, I was finally contacted by the DIA. They wanted to meet me at Northwestern after one of my classes. Five guys showed up from various intelligence agencies. Four of them belonged to that dreaded demographic, very intimidating, official-looking straight men in positions of authority, wearing bad polyester suits. The fifth was a younger guy in a sport coat who barely said a word. We met outside, and of course, I assumed they had rented a hotel room nearby, as they usually do for such meetings. But no, they wanted to have the meeting on a picnic table on the shore of Lake Michigan in the freezing cold in February. They handed me a document and insisted I sign it. When I started reading it, one of them quickly became aggressive and told me, just sign. I ignored him and continued reading. The document stated I had never been promised anything upon my return to the United States, that all official commitments from them to me had been fulfilled, and that our professional relationship had come to an end. I flatly refused to sign it. The four older guys obviously had come expecting the meeting to be contentious, and wasted no time in reducing themselves to hurling aggressive and even unabashedly homophobic insults at me and again demanded I sign the document. I was not about to give up the high ground by reducing myself to their level. At that point, I still didn't even have enough money for a proper winter coat. Between the Chicago winter and my anger, my voice and my entire body was literally shaking. I repeatedly suggested we go indoors, but it eventually occurred to me. They were using the freezing cold as an interrogation technique to intimidate me into doing what they wanted. That really pissed me off, and I convinced myself to just own the fact that I was shaking, to show it off to them proudly as if it were a badge of courage and defiance. I suggested I would be happy to sign their document if we put a line through the items discussing their financial commitments to me, and we both initialed it. I also reminded them, if I had kept the money the Russians had given me to pay for my trip to Greece, I would have had enough money to pay for my move. Instead, I had done the morally correct thing, and given my handler all the money the Russians gave me. Now, I expected them to do the morally correct thing and fulfill their obligations to me. The FBI agent said if I had kept the money, they would be there to arrest me. Then he said, just sign the fucking document, faggot, or you're going to jail. I lost it. And like my mother, when I'm angry, I become very articulate. Exactly how would you have known I had kept some or all of that money were it not for the fact that every damn one of you knows I am the only man here who has proven I can always be counted on to be scrupulously honest. Clearly, none of you can. Every damn one of you knows I am in the right, and I will never sign off on your lies. I turned around and I left. I literally spent the next few months fearing I would have a late-night knock on the door and be hauled off to prison by a bunch of homophobic FBI agents. But I had no way to protect myself. 
If I had gone to an attorney to share my fears, I would have given the U.S. intelligence agencies a real reason to have me arrested. So I had no choice but to just wait it out. The difference between my handler in Germany and these homophobic Neanderthals in America was so stark it left me utterly disgusted. I vowed then and there I would never again have anything to do with any intelligence agencies of the United States government. A few short years later, I was translating for the Prime Minister of the Soviet Union, several members of the Supreme Soviet. I had a working relationship with every major newspaper in Moscow, including my mentor, who was the editor at the Literary Gazette, and famously first dubbed Margaret Thatcher the Iron Lady, which, incidentally, has a very different and highly derogatory meaning in Russian. I also had a close personal friendship with the man who became the Minister of Communications in charge of television and film under President Vladimir Putin. I would have been an extraordinary asset for the American government. But I had learned. Not only could I not trust the Americans to have my back, but they had proven they were willing and even eager to throw the faggot under the bus without a second thought the moment they thought I was no longer useful. There is absolutely zero doubt in my mind the reason I was treated the way I was is because I'm gay. They made that very clear. Later, when the KGB approached me to resume our relationship, I simply said I was no longer interested in working with them and never would be again. The Americans blew it. They betrayed me and in so doing lost one of the best assets they would have ever had in the Soviet Union and later in the Russian Federation. A few months later, I was contacted again by the DIA. Apparently, the younger agent, who had barely spoken at all, had contacted my handler in Munich. Together, they submitted a request to reward me with a financial bonus for the work I had done in Germany. I was handed an envelope with $5,000 cash and asked to sign for its receipt and to sign the original document I had refused to sign earlier. I agreed, and I've never heard from them again. As a funny little footnote, my mentor in Moscow, Marina Ilyichna, was a very attractive woman in her early 40s and an editor at the Literary Gazette, the favorite publication of Russia's intelligentsia. She and I met during one of my first days in Moscow while I was doing my internship at the Soviet Film Institute. She was very savvy, and again in typical Russian style, without ever coming out and actually saying it, she made it very clear she knew I was gay. She also made it clear this suited her perfectly. As a matter of fact, it worked very much to both of our advantages. She was tired of men constantly hitting on her, so I became her arm candy, a sort of trophy toy, or at least that's what everyone else thought. We were actually each other's beards. She was left alone, and I gained access to the highest level social events in Moscow. It was great fun. I had a front row seat watching the collapse of the Soviet Union from within the highest levels of Russian intelligentsia, and had the honor of meeting many of the men and women who brought about the end of the Soviet Union. One day I got a message to come see her because she had something very funny she wanted to tell me. When I got there, she read me an article she had just approved for publication written by one of her journalists. It was the first time anyone had ever referred to Margaret Thatcher as the Zhelyeznaya Dama, the Iron Lady. Actually, the article said Margaret Thatcher was Ronald Reagan's Iron Lady. 
but I didn't get the joke. She explained to me that in colloquial 19th century Russian, the Iron Ladies were the working girls who followed the construction crews who built the iron railroads. In other words, they were calling Margaret Thatcher Ronald Reagan's whore. This phrase is literally engraved on Baroness Margaret Thatcher's tombstone, and to this day the English don't seem to understand its actual meaning. My name is Stuart Merrill, and I woke up this gay.